0: You're listening to Wiretap with Jonathan Goldstein on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius Satellite Radio 137. Today's episode,
1: One of a Kind. When I opened the front door, my mother handed me four cases of yogurt, all strawberry. She doesn't notice flavors, my mother. Coffee, vanilla, they don't mean a thing to her. I asked her how much I owed her and she told me that, with the coupons and how she used them on double down day that she actually made money off the purchase. I told her I didn't see how such a thing was possible, and she explained that the yogurts were a buck apiece, and her coupons were for 75 cents. Doubled, that's a dollar fifty. I make fifty cents off each one I buy, she said. She was excited today, because she had a project for the two of us, a defective shirt that needed exchanging. She got it from a clothing store near my house that's been around for decades, When I was a kid, my mother would bring me there to try on bell-bottoms, making me undress right in the aisles. "'What's wrong with the shirt?' I asked. "'It's missing a sleeve,' she said. "'How can I let your father leave the house like that?' "'No way.' "'It should be said that my father has left the house in far worse. Green corduroy vests, T-shirts advertising aquarium supplies, ties intended for novelty use only.' If it were handed to him, as he was getting out of a shower, I'm sure my father would figure out a way to wear a bridge chair. I asked how a missing sleeve might have escaped her notice during the purchase. She didn't remember. She bought it a long time ago. How long ago, I asked. She didn't really get the question. Life from my mother wasn't exactly a chronological unraveling. She looked at the bag and thought for a moment. Five years, she said. This kind of operation was what my mother lived for. It would be a challenge, a battle of wills, a game of chess, but with yelling. I remember as a kid watching her open three bottles of tahini, one after the other. She wasn't satisfied with the hermetic popping sound the caps made. It was too muted. She liked a pop that was more emphatic, a pop that cried, I have not been sprinkled with hemlock. She returned all of the jars to a grocery store she chose, not because she'd bought the tahini there, but because of its proximity to our house. The store didn't sell tahini. I'm not sure they even knew what it was. To be honest, it isn't that my mother exerts Clarence Darrow-like powers of persuasion. It's just that she has no shame. None at all. As an adult, I seem to have taken on the extra shame she has no use for. I don't like to draw attention to myself. If a waitress gets my order wrong, I keep my mouth shut. If a bus driver goes past my stop... I just get off at the next one. Scenes just aren't my thing. But even now, no matter where I go with my mother, there are always the inevitable spectacles. Just the thought of her getting all froth-mouthed about that one-armed shirt, it was enough to make me queasy. At the store, my mother went to the cash register and pulled the article of clothing out of the crumpled plastic bag. It's missing a sleeve, she said to the saleswoman. The saleswoman looked at it, then she held it up and turned it around. It doesn't have sleeves, the saleswoman said. It's a poncho. A poncho? my mother repeated, as though it were a foreign word, which, in her defense, I suppose it sort of is. You would think that would be the end of it that, confronted with reason, my mother would accept the fact that we live in a universe where such a thing as a poncho exists, and we would leave. But this was not to happen. Reason is of no concern in a staring contest. "'I don't care what it is,' she said evenly. "'It's factory defective. My husband can't wear it.' I thought of my father, a man very big on tucking in. Sweaters, aquarium-supply T-shirts... I thought of him packing the bottom of the poncho into his pants, belting up and heading out for an evening on the town, looking like Fatty Arbuckle. The saleswoman refused to give the money back, so my mother asked her to get the manager. She disappeared behind a row of suit jackets, and as we waited for her return, I remained by my mother's side. Standing there in this way, I later realized I had developed as a kid. It was a posture that was meant to convey filial loyalty, peppered with a touch of what Vietnam vets call the thousand-yard stare. In the back room, I imagined the saleswoman conferring with the manager, a bedraggled, shiny-jowled man, as he stared at my mother through a security cam, watching with a look of recognition that quickly turned to panic. When the saleswoman returned, She immediately started offering store credit. That was a mistake. Weakness. Credit? So you can unload socks on us? My mother asked. We need more socks like we need rickets. Desperate to diffuse the situation, I grabbed a baseball cap off a nearby shelf and handed it to my mother. Reluctantly, she got it for me with her credit. Lucky for you, my boy needs a hat, she said. Walk around in it. Make sure it isn't too tight around the temples. As we left the store together, my new cap on my head, I felt about ten years old. I'll hold on to the receipt, my mother said. Just in case.
2: Hey, Jonathan, it's Gregor. I uh, just heard that piece about your mother. I have to say, um, you were breaking my heart. If you're going to get some mileage out of the fact that your mother made you go return something without a receipt, I think I have a media empire to build out of my childhood. Cause, I mean, I'm not trying to one-up you here, but did I ever tell you that I never had new underwear till I was about in college? Because my mom never understood that she needed to buy me new underwear. So one day when I was about 12 years old, she walked in and I had these quilted underroos on, and I was splitting the sides up with my pocket knife. And she was like, what are you doing? And I was like, I don't know, just trying to make these underwear fit that I had since I was three years old that are made for toilet training. I mean, it's no tragedy compared to returning stuff without a receipt and being a little humiliated by your mom. Give me a call one of these days. We'll have breakfast. Hello? Hey, Gregor. Really? Gregor, you don't say. Hello, I'm just kidding. I'm not home, but leave a message and I'll call you back. Oh God.
1: Hey, Gregor, uh, that's that's a that's a funny outgoing message. Um, well, thank you. Thanks for your message. Um, I, I didn't realize this was a duel that I was getting into, but uh, but it looks like the gauntlet's been thrown. So, um, okay, hot shot. Here we go. How about this? When I was seven. My mother once yelled at me for buying her a box of chocolates for Valentine's Day because I bought them on Valentine's Day and and not the day after when they were 50% off. Actually yelled in my 7-year-old face for buying her chocolates. You know, there's something for you to chew on. You call me back.
2: Jonathan, what happened to you? You bought the wrong chocolates? How about this one? My mother has 27, that's 2-7, turnip cedars. You know what a turnip cedar is? A thing for seeding turnips. She has 27 turnip seeders hanging on the wall. That's why I don't have my own bedroom. I had to sleep in my brother's room because she had 27 turnip seeders. How's that for a sad story? We'll put that on the radio.
1: Your mother sounds like Mary Poppins. Here's a little reality check for you, Gregor, okay? My mother used to make me take off my pants when I was buying shoes. I had to try on shoes in my underwear to make sure that the shoes fit right. To this day, I have no idea why she insisted on this, okay? But I did it. I listened to her. And do you know what that was like? you know, to stand there with leather dress shoes on or winter boots half naked in the aisles of a shoe store. That's how he did things in my hood. Call me back.
2: You know, you know what this reminds me of? Do you remember when Khrushchev met Kennedy? It was like a boy meeting a man. I mean, come on. Do you really want to get into this with me? I was just thinking about some other stories. that keep coming to me in the middle of the night. I'm getting night sweats thinking about all the things my mother did to me. It's a miracle I'm as sane as I am. Do you want to talk about how my mother covers up all the clocks with electrical tapes so she doesn't get cancer from the digital clocks? Do you want to engage on whose mother is more insane and tortured them as a kid? Did I ever even tell you about the Knippers and the Cloppers? I don't think I, you want to go there, Jonathan. Call me.
1: I introduced my first girlfriend in high school to my mother while she was sitting on the toilet. We walked through the door. She started screaming at us from the open bathroom door for us to come upstairs so she can meet her because she's heard so much about her. My first girlfriend, age of 16, okay? You try uh, having a normal life after something like that. You get back to me.
2: Did I ever tell you about the time that my mom peed in the car? I'm not talking about in the bathroom with any 16-year-old girlfriend. I mean, I was driving down the road in the car and my mother said I wouldn't want to go in one of those gas station things and I was like yeah they're kind of awful whatever blah 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 and The next thing I knew she climbed between the front seats into the back and we had a cooler full of food and a cat dish and she put the cat dish in the cooler and peed into the cat dish and I'm not talking about this is when I was seven years old I was driving the car this was like about a month ago And my mother's 75 years old and she peed in the cat dish in the moving car I mean I'm telling you Stay away, my friend. You do not want to engage on this topic.
1: Okay, you win. That's absolutely disgusting. You are the master, sir, and I bow my head.
2: I'm glad you quit, Jonathan. I'm glad you quit, because I'm just getting warmed up. Gregor, Did I tell you the story of how when we had a sparkler, we had to stand in the bathtub full of cold water in case the sparkler set the house on fire? Gregor. This was on the 4th of July. She used to take a, a hot water bottle and s- screw a hose onto it like I lived in the turn of the century. It was like her cure for when I had a fever.
1: Can I, can I tell you something? And this is coming from me, mind you, but I think you and your mother need help.
2: Yeah, thanks. She'd fill me full of that hot water bottle until I was ready to explode. Okay, you win. How does that stack up with your returning... Uh, you win. What would you rather have, a receipt from the wrong store or an Anima? What is this? I'm oh. I'm oh.
0: Jesus and I were pretty good friends, and after he disappeared from our neighborhood and all those TV reporters started showing up on our street, I was a pretty hot property. My mom would freak out and call them vultures when they tried to ask me questions, but I'd try and chill her out. Be cool, I'd say. It wasn't just that I liked being on TV, I truly liked talking about Jesus. I still do. And to this day, people are always asking me to tell them everything I know about him. Jesus and I were in grade 6 when we first met. And back then, not everyone was allowed to hang out with me. A part of the reason was the way I dressed. I was the only girl in class who had a pair of high heels. And for my birthday, my mother bought me a ton of black bracelets with studs on them. Other people's parents said I looked like a whore, and they didn't want their kids to get my whore cooties or something but my attitude has always been to just be who you got to be. A part of this way of thinking comes from me, but a good part of it also comes from the stuff that Jesus taught me. But more on that later. Jesus first showed up in the middle of the school year and sat in the back of the class. On that first day, when our chemistry teacher put on this movie about molecules, Jesus held up his hands in front of the projector and made a shadow puppet of a dove. That's how I first noticed him. It was about a week later when everybody started to notice Jesus. In moral education we had to give a presentation on a social concern, and Jesus did his on world hunger. He went up to the front of the classroom without a loose-leaf paper or anything, and started going on about how there wasn't such a thing as world hunger which, as well as being a downright weird thing to say, was also factually incorrect. We had all seen pictures of Ethiopia on the news, and those poor kids were definitely hungry. Jesus said that if God fed the sparrows and butterflies, then he would also feed humans. The teacher pointed out that a lot of animals had gone extinct because the environment hadn't provided for them. But Jesus shrugged and went back to his seat. So we just figured he was really stupid. A lot of the kids in the class tended to not like Jesus very much. This, of course, was not helped by the fact that the teachers thought he was nuts. I know teachers aren't supposed to think stuff like that, but you just knew they were thinking it anyhow. Like when we went on a class field trip to the zoo... Jesus went over to the lion's cage and stuck his hand through the bars. The teacher was still screaming at him the next day in class, going on about how not only could he have lost a hand, but he'd also have been forced to go from school to school, giving lectures about it. "'Why would you do something so stupid?' the teacher demanded. "'I knew that the lion wouldn't have bitten me,' Jesus said. "'I could just feel it in my heart.' You just know he became the talk of the teacher's lounge with that one. But you'd think bravery like that would impress kids, right? Well, you're half right. Feeding your hand to a lion is cool, no doubt, but it's just that he was also imperiously lame, so lame that it undid all of the good. For instance, once when we were all in the back of the schoolyard and Judas was explaining to us where babies came from, Jesus positively spazzed out. I knew about all that baby stuff even then, and I knew that Judas was 50% full of crap. But if I piped up with my corrections, he'd be all, excuse moi professor, been around the block. So I just kept my mouth shut. But Jesus, on the other hand, started having a complete breakdown. He said that Judas was a liar, and that if a woman hears someone whispering in her ear in the middle of the night, and if she sits up and looks around and no one is there, She'll be pregnant by the morning. If you think that's the truth, said Judas, then I have some magazines for you to look at. And everyone laughed. I'm sad to report that even I did, just a little. Since Jesus and I lived on the same block, we'd walk home from school together, One day, on our way home, he invited me over to his house to play with his Ouija board. I hadn't played with one of those since I was a kid. Ouija boards reminded me of my mom's creepy boyfriends, but since I didn't get a lot of invitations, I accepted. Plus, in all honesty, I've always liked weirdos who are into the occult. It's just the way I'm built. As we walked to his house... Jesus told me that his father didn't really love his mother. He didn't believe that Jesus was his child. He told me that while swinging his lunch pail. He told me that the same way you would tell someone that you liked apples. When someone tells you something like that, all casual, it sort of takes the pressure off. You don't have to start rocking them in your arms and stuff. His family lived in a building that had a huge billboard advertising beer on the roof, and there were dogs walking around in the stairwell. We went into his room, closed off all the lights, and set up the Ouija board on the bed. As soon as we touched the marker, it started zipping around like a cockroach high on roach poison. I had never seen such a thing before. Jesus and I took our fingers off the marker. But it kept sliding around, just the same. It spelled out, I am with you, Jesus. Jesus and I screamed our heads off. We jumped off the couch and ran right into the apartment hallway. Under the stairwell, I let Jesus put his hand under my shirt to see how hard my heart was beating. After that, things started getting weirder and weirder. Sitting in the cafeteria together one day, Jesus put his juice box down and turned to me. "'Tell me if this apple juice doesn't taste funny to you,' he said. I took a swig. It tasted just like wine. I recognized it as wine because I'd had some at my cousin's wedding the year before. "'Why did your mother give you wine?' I asked." I don't think she did, he answered. Word of the wine spread like wild. Pretty soon everyone in our class was lined up at our table asking for a sip. Jesus passed around his box, and everyone got some. When there was none left, we all sang this crazy fast version of Don't Worry, Be Happy. After that, everyone started letting Jesus hang out with them. And since I was his friend, I got to hang out with everybody, too. A lot of boys in class took to following him around, anxious to see what he'd do next. The boys started calling themselves the Holy Ghosts. Jesus got mad and embarrassed when he heard about it, though. He didn't think the gang should have a name. He didn't even think that they were a gang, although that's obviously what they were fast becoming. Jesus showed up one day at my house. I never invited people over, so I was a little put off having Jesus in our house. Once I had Judith over, and he said he found my apartment depressing. I like your place, Jesus said leaning against the bedroom window pane. You have a great view from here, right out onto the record store. It probably helps you dream of music. We have the best neighborhood. "'Wouldn't you rather we lived in Westmount?' I asked. "'Westmount was the fanciest neighborhood in the city, "'and my mother was always going on about how, "'if she won the lucky seven, "'she'd set fire to the building "'and move us there in a smoke cloud of glory.' "'Being rich is stupid,' he said. "'It's way better to have less. "'It makes you cooler. "'No one from a rich background can ever really be cool.' He said all of this just the way he dropped the news about his dad. Very matter-of-fact. Maybe that was why I bought it. It seemed to just make sense. Like he was saying something that I had already thought myself, but had never actually gotten around to putting into complete sentences. Jesus' words made me feel like, no matter how much there was something deep down wrong with you, there really wasn't anything wrong with you at all. I was sitting on the side of my bed listening and thinking when Jesus remarked on the cut on my arm. I got it when I crashed into a telephone pole while running and looking into people's windows at the same time. Jesus held my arm and kissed it. And then, just like that, the cut turned into a scab. It was like in a dream where funny things happen and you just don't question them. It was then I had a brainstorm. Our washing machine hadn't been working for months, so I brought Jesus over to it, and it turned on. It still made the same old awful clanking sound, but still, it was working. I brought my mother over to see, and she tried to get Jesus to pick a lottery number for her, but he wouldn't do it. Finally, she gave up on getting it out of him and just used the numbers in his birthday. And she won $30. When the weather got nice, Jesus and I started hanging out in Jerusalem Park. The only problem with Jerusalem Park was all the older bums who hung out there, who were always coming up to you. Sometimes they wanted to hit you up for change or smokes, but mostly they just wanted to mouth off about their hippy-dippy ideas. It was at that park that Jesus and I first met Jean-Baptiste. Even though it was spring, he was wearing a big brown fur coat and eating from a jar of honey with a plastic spoon. His legs were folded, and judging from his bare knees, he didn't have anything on under his coat. Jean-Baptiste came up to us and said that seeing Jesus gave him a real déjà vu. Déjà vu was big among the hippie bums, it seemed. "'It's like I recognize you from when I was a kid,' said Jean-Baptiste. "'But that would be impossible. I'm twice your age. Plus, I grew up in Winnipeg.' Jesus smiled politely. Jean-Baptiste looked at him in a knowing way. "'We were born for terrible things to befall us,' said Jean-Baptiste. He kissed his palm and put it on Jesus' forehead.' "'Are you wacko?' I shouted at Jesus. "'Don't let him do that. You're going to get hepatitis.' "'You think this boy is afraid of germs?' Jean-Baptiste laughed. "'He has a pure spirit, man. He wants everyone's germs.' "'I don't know, mister,' I said. "'Not everyone likes to roll around in the dirt like you do.' "'He sure does. He's got a messiah complex.' He'd put it on the line for anyone, anywhere, anytime. For some reason, this made me sick and scared and angry. I was angry we had even stopped to talk to him. If you are so smart, I said, go find yourself a job. And then I grabbed Jesus by the hand, and together we ran out of the park. That was the last time I ever saw Jesus He had karate lessons with Judas that night And they were supposed to take the bus downtown together like they usually did Except that night Judas never showed up His mother gave him a lift and he figured Jesus would put two and two together And head downtown on his own once he saw he wasn't coming But Jesus just stayed sitting on the bus bench waiting Judas always said he really regretted that The story went that Jesus was abducted, but nobody can really say for sure. The thing is, he would have been really easy to kidnap. Jesus trusted everyone. He probably walked right into the kidnapper's car without any hesitation. There were pictures of Jesus plastered to every telephone pole in the city, and practically the whole school had to be treated for post-traumatic stress syndrome. It seemed like no one could get the image of him walking into that kidnapper's car out of their heads. This one kid in our gang, Peter, said he saw Jesus in the park three days after he vanished, walking across the kiddie pool. But you couldn't believe what Peter said. He'd become totally obsessed with Jesus after the disappearance. Every composition he wrote in class was about him. The teacher said it was just his way of coping with the stress. I guess I was dealing with some serious stress of my own, because one day in art class, when the teacher told me that little girls who wore black tank tops didn't get into college, I stood up and yelled, What makes you so perfect? You've done too many lousy things yourself to be judging children. And the teacher got all red in the face when I said that, because he knew it was the truth. I knew that Jesus would have loved that one. It was the kind of thing that he would say. And it felt good to say it.
1: That was Heather O'Neill, reading her short story, The Gospel According to Mary M., from Cartier Elementary. Heather's recently published novel, Lullabies for Little Criminals, was chosen as a contender in this year's edition of Canada Reads. Earlier in the show, you also heard Gregor Ehrlich. Wiretap is produced by me, Jonathan Goldstein, along with Sarah Gilbert, Carolyn Warren, and Mira Bertwin-Tonic. You can also hear Wiretap across North America on Sirius Satellite Radio 137. Reach us at our website at cbc.ca slash wiretap.